0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. The Pension Challenge Administration team has been complaining for some time that because of the way the McLeod remedy interacts with the specifics of the police pension scheme and the firefighters pension scheme as well, a new form of age discrimination is being effectuated with officers in some circumstances and we will come on to the detail presently, having their pensions actuarially reduced by as much as 50%. Earlier this month, they added to those complaints the charges of sex discrimination because the McLeod remedy adversely impacts those who have claimed maternity leave or who have spent time part of their career working part time. And because of all this, the Fuzz argues that their supposedly protected pensions rights have not been protected after all and they want change. We will go through some of that in more detail and see if they have any hope of getting it. Then the Department for Work and Pensions has, some might say belatedly or at any rate finally been persuaded that members should actually be able to understand their actual benefit statements, so the government has picked up and intends to implement a plan for a two-page simple statement containing such useful information as the current size of a member's workplace pension pot, a projection for how much they can expect to enjoy at retirement, and advice on how to make that even more enjoyable if they wish to. The idea has been kicking around since about 2017, I believe. The government intends for schemes to start sending these in 2022. It's been broadly welcomed, but some have complained that the omission of costs and charges information will limit the usefulness of the new statements. We'll take a look at them ourselves and see if more could or should have been done. And then finally, the industry has spent quite some time calling for more to be done to tackle pension scams. Absolutely everybody agrees more must be done to tackle pension scams. But the government caused some fuss when it finally published its plans to tackle pension scams. It intends to build on the work already done to limit the statutory right to a transfer, requiring trustees to confirm that a destination scheme is one with which the member has a genuine employment link, or if it is a recognised qualifying overseas pension scheme, that the member resides in the same financial jurisdiction as the scheme. Failing that, they will have to determine whether there are any red or amber flags associated with the scheme, and that process will either halt or postpone a proposed transfer, Some warned that this will unnecessarily delay thousands of legitimate transfers, while others argued that it didn't go far enough to delay transfers. You can't please everyone, I suppose, but uh, we'll ask our guests where they stand and hopefully find a measure of agreement lacking in the initial response to the government's plans. I'm Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter and pensions expert. And speaking of our guests, I'm joined today by Hadassah Shulman, Senior Associate at Taylor Wessing, and by Joe Craig, Development Lead at Quiet Room. Thank you both very much for joining me. We will begin with the police. Uh, The Pension Challenge Administration team has, as I said, reiterated its complaints about the pensions trap many of its officers have apparently been thrown into. They cite the true life examples of two officers who joined the 1987 scheme in 1996, one aged 19, the other aged 25. If the two officers moved to the career average revalued earnings schemes in 2022, which is proposed by the government's consultation, and they retire 30 years after 30 years of service as per the scheme rules, the older officer can draw on their 2015 care pension Immediately, the younger officer has to wait another six years until 55 to draw benefits. The older officer sees their pension then actuarially reduced by 22%. The younger officer's benefit would apparently be reduced by 50%. Technical matter, clearly one with significant financial implications. And, and Joe, if I come to you on this one now, obviously that the, there's, there's a communications angle here in the sense that a lot of these police members, we might be running, hopefully, we're, we're hoping to run a story at some point in the future on, on members who where they made a decision based on what they were told at the time was the case with the McLeod remedy, which they would not have made had they known, obviously, at the time, it would be found to be unlawfully discriminatory. Um, And a lot of them just don't know where they stand with regards to uh, their contingent claims in this area. How does one go about, if you are the government and you have made what would appear, well, it is a mistake that's been legally found to be one, how do you go about keeping members in the loop? Is there a way of keeping them in the loop in a way that satisfies them completely? Or was there so always going to be this element of, of conflict between them that has to be resolved legally? Is there an extra legal way around it, do you think? It's a really interesting
1: challenge. And this, this whole McLeod affair, and I'm going to call it the McLeod affair <laughs> because I, I like making it sound like a Robert Ludlum title, it's a sort of perfect storm where you have uncertainty within the industry, you have uncertainty. With anyone that we talk to outside the industry, you have complexity and you have, as you said in the introduction, real implications for people's pensions. Quite often with the pensions issues that are particularly baffling and complicated, actually, for the majority of people out there in the world, the implications are not that huge. I'm thinking of something like GMP, for example, but here it seems like there are greater implications for more people. It's perhaps even more complicated, tied up in more historical knots. And anywhere where you're talking about people making a choice in pensions, you're on very shaky ground because pensions are supposed to be this thing that it's a stable world, it's an unchanging world, or that's what people want at least, that's the perception. They want to rely on this, they want to trust this world, that they bought into this thing psychologically when they were younger, they paid their dues, they put in service to their workplace – and they're going to get a knowable thing at the end of it. So anytime you rock that boat, it's not just unsettling for the individual person involved, where they suddenly think, oh, they don't know what they're going to get, or they might get less, or they're being discriminated against. The, the higher level above that is that you're undermining faith in pensions as an institution, which is really dangerous. And we've had a lot more of this over the last few years. And this does feed into the subject we'll talk about later on, on scams. But you're the, the way that you communicate and the way that you talk about something as complex as this and something that involves a change in pensions or a change in the way that a person is treated, you have to take that into consideration. It's already given rise to my new favourite piece of pensions jargon, the deferred choice underpin, which is just a glorious piece of jargon. And the idea that, you, that you're going to be writing to members hoping to rebuild that trust or that faith in pensions using terms like deferred choice underpin i can't decide whether it's a wrestling move or a particularly painful brain operation uh, even even before you get to the the idea of an underpin which presumably means something to actuaries the idea of a deferred choice just think about that when as soon as you qualify the word choice i mean i know it's meant to be a a good thing cuz you're letting people choose the better of two options you're letting people put a bet on the race after the race has been run pick the winner. But the idea of, oh, you, yeah, you have a choice, but uh, now hold on, it's it's a deferred choice. So, you, yeah, now here's, here's the menu. You can choose any of these things, but not those. Or it's a really tricky piece of jargon to get away with. And people stumble into this not realising that the language problem leads to a, a trust problem, which is a real issue for pensions in general and becoming more so, the more of these exercises that we do
0: yes it's not the catchiest of three word slogans that i've seen around recently um, if it takes us a thousand words to explain the damn thing, then I, I feel sorry for you know ordinary members who have to deal with it. But um, coming back just finally on, on the subject of the police to Hadassi, if I, if I may, this subject of um, these officers with their, their, I think they are called contingent claims, those who made decisions before that they wouldn't have made had they known what they now know and if the government had known what it now knows. Do they have a, a separate case, do you think? I mean, do, do they, is there any special mechanism for essentially be people who've been persuaded to take a poor choice of action by a poor law. Is that a relatively simple thing to clean up from a legal perspective or is that just as fraught as the rest?
2: It's certainly not simple to clean up. It involves getting into exactly what they were told, proving that they would have done something differently if they knew. All sorts of things come up in claims based on what you would have done in the past if something else happened to be true. And I think it will be another one that depends on the exact scenario of the person. For some people, it might be really easy because had they been told that one piece of information, it would have been obvious that one of the other results was better. But for most people, as Joe was saying, (laughs) the way we communicate is so complicated, even if they had provided this information, they might not have understood it and made a different choice. So whilst it is a separate type of complaint, and certainly one that should be Considered and those communications looked at very carefully, it isn't an, it's certainly not an easier way to a solution for these officers.
0: No, it sounds not. So, in which case, we will probably be covering that at some point in the future. So, watch this space for the contingent claims angle. Um, we'll move on in that case to uh, simpler statements. I confess I saw the express headline when uh, Pensions Minister government gave his interview to them, and it said that the government was going to ban confusing pension statements. I thought that DWP was then taking a vow of silence. Uh, but like, what, what was I supposed to do? My, so much of my job involves uh, making sense of confusing pension statements from regulators and policymakers. But um, no, they were talking, of course, about the new two-page simpler statements, which, as mentioned, they're supposed to go out to members from 2022. Uh, they'll contain information about the current and projected size of their workplace pension pots, but not information about cost and charging, which uh, Romy Savova, Chief Executive of Pension, PensionBee, said was disappointing. She told us that straightforward information on performance and charges should go hand in hand if we're to improve consumer engagement and trust in the pensions industry. Joe, I'll begin with you because I believe Quiet Room was was instrumental in drawing up the the first proposals for the the simpler statements. If if we talk about um, engagement then with this, is simpler statements, are simpler statements, supposed themselves to drive more member engagement because they are intelligible, unlike statements preceding. Or is it the kind of thing that needs other pushes alongside them to boost member engagement just to get members to look at these simpler statements in the first place? Do they go hand in hand or is there another thing required alongside? In terms of engagement, there are two things here that are really important about the statement
1: that have sort of dropped out of the conversation because everyone's so excited about them being simpler. And that is a big thing. And it's great. And yes, we've translated, if you like, jargon and complex language and 17-page statements, in some cases, down to two pages of simple, understandable language. But that wasn't everything that it was all about, really. Uh, if you just wanna take a piece of complicated language and make it simple, that's a re- not everyone can do it, but it's a relatively straightforward job. What the statement does, as well as using everyday simple language that people can understand, it does two things. One is that it's intended to be a standard statement, and that is a lot of its power. The idea that you're in lots of different schemes and your statements are coming at different times. And I think they're now talking about consulting on a a statement season, so they come at the same time. And they all look different. They talk about things in different ways. They might be referring to the same stuff and the same mechanisms, but they're using different words to describe it. And there's no way of comparing them, no way of easily adding them up. So the first thing we did was, what can we create that any DC scheme can use. They can put their colors on it. They can put their branding on it. But the layout, the language, the numbers, the order of information needs to be standard. So if a member gets two of these, 10 of these, 20 of these, you can line them all up and go, okay, I can easily see what's happening with each of these things. I don't need to learn to speak 20 different languages. I don't need to learn to interpret 20 different pieces of visual information. I can compare them. I can add them up. I can work out what's going on with me, because they're one individual. So they need one way of talking about those things. If schemes and organisations want to send out their own extra information alongside it, great. But the idea was to have one standard thing that everybody could rely on, understand every single time and compare easily. So that was the first thing, the standard standardisation. And our original name for this whole operation was not the simple annual statement, it was the standard annual statement. So you might still see people referring to that, because that is a huge piece of why it's so important, and how it will do the job that it's intended to do. The other thing is a more subtle one, which was changing the focus of what the statement was about, because you had statements from all these different schemes looking at really that the headline was, this is what your pensions going to be. So you have that perennial problem in pensions of you're giving something up now, here's what you're giving up, what you're putting into your pension. Here's something that we've pretty much pulled out of a hat as far as you're concerned, because you don't understand the actuarial calculations behind it, or the way investment works, or even in some cases, in most cases, the fact that your pension is invested at all. And you might get that at some point in the future, but people don't really connect with their future selves in the same way. So in terms of engagement, it's a very off-putting message. You've given this thing up now. If you give up even more, you might get even more later. That was the kind of standard message that some schemes were giving, all that... uh, Now, you can make it as everyday and relatable as you like. You can talk about, oh, if you just give up a coffee every day, you might get this other thing in the future, depending on investments and calculations and what you do with it and annuities and all those things. And that's quite an off-putting message. There's no other industry where you talk about what you need to give up and could you give up more to get this thing that you're not going to get yet? So we changed the whole focus of the statement away from that to the much more encouraging, I would say inspiring message to show right up front. Here's what you've put in. Here's the way that's been boosted already by your employer, by government, and by any investment returns. And of course, that goes up or down. And here's what that is worth now. So you can see straight away in that top line, if you look at the statement, it's got those blobs that you can't miss the top of the first page. Here's what you put in. Here's what's happened to boost that. And here's what it's worth now. That's a really powerful message. I and mean, all in, in all of the testing that Ignition House did, that was much more motivating and engaging. And it just makes sense to me as well, at a common sense level, to see that it's the best return you're ever going to get for putting money into anything. And the way that that boost works from your employer and from the government, that investments can pretty much go crazy and you're still going to come out ahead is a really powerful and inspiring message and much more engaging for people. So we did those two things. We made them standard. We put front and centre that idea that you're getting that overnight boost. It's the best return you're going to get for your money in a savings product. And of course, that goes hand in hand with the simple everyday language that people can understand.
0: Excellent. Very well. In which case, we will move on to the final topic, which is the government's proposals to tackle pension uh, scams builds on the already limited uh, now statutory right to a transfer, but the new proposals go further. They require some scheme managers and trustees to confirm that a transfer is the one of a number of schemes declared to have a low scam risk. If it's considered low risk, no further action or confirmation is needed. If it is not considered low risk, members can only exercise their right to a transfer if they can provide certain prescribed evidence. Trustees need to be able to confirm that the member has demonstrated a genuine employment link between themselves, as mentioned in the introduction, or if the case of the qualifying recognized overseas pension scheme, that they live in the same place as the pension scheme exists. If not, then the trustees will have to check for red flags. And if there are red flags, the transfer is stopped or amber flags. And if they're amber flags, then the member must prove that they've had guidance before the transfer continues, as far as I understand it. There's been concerns that this will lead to a lot of legitimate transfers being delayed, but other people have said that that's probably not a problem. And in fact, the measures should have gone further. I think the Pensions Management Institute even called for a complete abolition of the statutory right to the transfer. But uh, we'll um, come to Hadassah, if you don't mind leading us off on this one. Where do you stand on the implications of the regulators, new scam messages, is it going to delay lots of legitimate things or is it, is it broadly a sensible approach?
2: I think it personally, I think it's a broadly sensible approach. I, I don't think it will delay lots and lots of transfers because actually a lot of transfers will be to what they are called green transfers. So a lot of transfers are to, for example, personal pension schemes where the provider is authorised by the FCA. And they're green, they just go through as normal And so we're talking about a subset of transfers in the first place that we're going to be looking at in a bit more detail. And even now, those transfers tend to be looked at in a bit more detail by trustees anyway, because trustees are conscious of scams. And although they haven't had the power to stop them in the way that this provides, they do things like trying to encourage the member to look at information about scams, maybe speak to someone else if they can. To try and direct a member. And so that process can already take longer than if you're transferring to a personal pension scheme. Now, are some transfers going to take longer? Probably. But the payoff for that is hopefully that fewer scam transactions occur. And I personally think that's a payoff worth going for because. The amount of money that people are losing by these scam transactions, sometimes when the trustees can see quite obviously that this is a scam, it's got all of the typical red flags. It's, It's an overseas investment. There's no employment link. The person doesn't live overseas. They've had a cold call. All those red flags are there. But the person is so persuaded by the scammers. And, you know, they are very good at communication. They're better than the pensions industry at it. Um, And that's partly what Joe was talking about earlier about pensions industry doesn't have that trust. So here, what we're doing is saying, look, don't worry so much about trusting us. We'll make those decisions in those extreme cases instead. And I think that will be a powerful thing for people. I should say, I don't think it's going to stop all scam activity. Scammers are very clever and they move very, very quickly and they will see how these transactions are proceeding, what evidence is looked for, and find loopholes. But the more of those loopholes we can close, the better.
0: Excellent. And Joe, do you want to just round us off on, on this topic? Obviously, what we've said earlier about the need for very clear and simple communications and this measure introduces red flags if red flags then, amber flags if amber flags then. You are obliged in certain circumstances to check for them, but not all circumstances. And if they're on a safe list, then even if there are red flags, then you don't necessarily have to go and do all the information. Anyway, Obviously, tackling scams is an incredibly important thing, and policy is going to inevitably be complex in some areas. Is this Could this have been simplified, do you think? Uh, is it clear enough to trustees, to members themselves? I think trustees
1: could, would always like things to be clearer, but they're quite good at picking their way through new regulation and tearing their hair out to make sense of it. And they have excellent lawyers like Hadassah to help them there's always going to be that tension between speed and ease for the member and security. We we deal with it every day. Every time you put in a password to a website and have to do two-factor authentication or there's an Indian takeaway that I use that requires a 12-character password just seems disproportionate. If someone wants to hack into my Indian takeaway account and order me an Indian takeaway, they are most welcome. And I don't want to have to come up with another 12 character password. So that payoff is even, that balance is even more important when you're talking about something that is the way that members feel about their retirement savings more than an Indian takeaway. So you're dealing with a situation where members are gonna be tearing their hair out and frustrated at any delays whether their transfer is to a legitimate scheme or not. And as as I said, I don't think there will be that much friction for a legitimate one, although there might be a little because every time you add in security, there always is And there's extra admin. There are two things here for me which play into this question. One is what advice, and I use that word deliberately, is someone getting? before they decide to have a tra- to, to go for a transfer at all and where they're going to transfer their money to. And I think the industry can do a lot more work rather than looking at the legislation and new regulation and saying, oh, well, that's going to make it easy, that's going to make it hard. Let's look at the other side of the balance and think, well, what access does someone have to advice and, OK, to guidance and all the help that someone has along that spectrum that leads to them deciding they want to transfer out and where they're going to go. Because if we improve that service and make it easier for people to have help, which is the word that members use, they just want some help. And actually they use the word advice as well, not realizing that that means a whole other kettle of fish than just guidance or help. But if we make that easier, then you're not going to have as much going into the system that requires this extra legislation and regulation and amber flags and red flags because you've got a more supported member population making the biggest financial decisions of their lives involving probably the biggest pot of money they're ever going to handle but having to do it without any support without any help so that's the context into which scammers come because they scammers are there because they know there are rich pickings for them if they operate well and as Hadassah says they communicate very well because they're not regulated they don't have to worry about whether what they say is true the other thing the second thing is who does a member rely on to put the brakes on something if it is a scam? They might not be thinking going into anything that, oh, it might be a scam, it might not even be a conscious thought. But there is somewhere in everyone's psychological makeup the idea that, well, if this isn't right, I'd hear about it or someone will stop it. And in the industry, we're sort of assuming that that's the member themselves, that, oh, well, the, the responsibility is on the individual member. And for the member, there's a number of different players. And let's not underestimate things like Google. They're just gonna search for a thing to check whether it's legitimate. They're just gonna go on what their family says. Although we know that lots of people are embarrassed to even talk to their family about this thing. And especially after the fact, if they discover it is a scam, people are embarrassed to talk about it even though they might've lost a lot of money. Are we gonna rely on the mainstream press who with great respect for your profession, the non-specialist press are not that great at conveying important information about technical subjects and about subjects like pensions, members look to social media and people they consider to be their peers. So immediately, you know that you're in really a dodgy situation if the people that members are relying on to raise red flags are the people on social media and they're going to be looking at what their peers are doing and they'll turn to scammers themselves. They'll say to the scammer, are you sure this is legit? Is this okay? And just want that reassurance from the scammer who can, of course, unregulated and untruthful say, Yeah, of course, this is fine. What members don't realize is that there's a group of people whose job it is to put the brakes on and to look out for the members, and that's the trustees. But if members don't know that, and members don't know who their trustees are, and don't understand that a trustee is there to look out for them and get the best for them, and that they have their in, the member's best interests at heart. If members don't realize those things, then how are they gonna feel when they see trustees putting the brakes on or taking a long time to do a transfer? They don't understand why these people are in the way or doing this thing. So work on the support that members have to make their decisions and work on the relationship that trustees have with their members. So the first people that members think of when looking for a bit of reassurance or raising amber flags or red flags or flags
0: of any color are the trustees. And then they won't be annoyed when that thing happens. Hopefully not, no. Well, in that case, that leaves us just about the time for the always a pensions angle. And I think, Joey, that you had one for us today.
1: Yeah, I like this one. This is a man who left a big tip at a restaurant to impress a date and then was caught sneaking back to try to claim a refund from the waitress. And as soon as I read that, I just went on a flight of fancy imagining that waitress's life and whether those tips contribute to pensionable pay and whether giving a refund on a tip means that what she may already have automatically put into her pension, uh, she needs to take out again or can't get her hands on again. And of course, most likely nothing is going automatically into a pension because she might be someone who has several different jobs, each paying her less than the threshold at uh, which she'd be auto-enrolled. So I immediately thought of the pensions life of the poor waitress having to deal with a man trying to get a refund
0: for a big tip. Maybe that's the solution to small parts is just to replace small pension pots with just tip jars. <laughs> Problem solved. I'm sure the regulator would have something to say about that, but I'll, I'll put it to them anyway and see what they say. Excellent. That brings us then to the end of the programme. Thank you very much to Hadassah and to Joe for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll be back with you in two weeks' time. We hope to see you then.